from the Crown Plaza Hotel in Jerusalem. It is cold, it is winter. It's disgusting outside. <laughs> but we are here and warm and safe in the Blue Corner, the podcast of the Israel Innovation Fund. I'm David Hazoni, Executive Director of the Israel Innovation Fund. This is Adam Scott Fellows. He is the CEO and founder of the Israel Innovation Fund. And today we have Ishmael Khaldi, a very important diplomat for Israel's foreign ministry. You were the acting consul general in Miami. And where before that? Well, I was back here in Jerusalem. And before that? And before that, I was in London. And in between, I spent uh, as a TDY, temporary uh, missions around uh, Africa, African countries, in uh, India, Nepal, in other places, short trips. Representing the country. Representing the country and preserving my culture. You know, Bedouins are shepherds and nomads, so keeping moving all the way on the ground. It's good. <laughs> Where are you from originally? I'm originally from a little Bedouin village called Khawali. It's northeast from Haifa, on the eastern side of the Zvulum Valley. Mm-hmm. It's a Bedouin village of 700 people today. I grew up in that area. How long has the village been there? Well, the village is part of the Bedouin community in the Galil, who are about 65,000 people, 20 different villages, communities. And originally, we came from different parts of the Middle East. We came here about 180 years ago, and the 19th century, under the... Ottoman regime, and uh, we, you know, settled in that area on those uh, hills along the Tsipori River. What brought them there? Well, they came here to look for grazing their animals, the sheep and goats, and water resources, of course, and uh, that was the place. They used to call it the forest in Bedouin terms then. They heard about the forest, and for them it was the Galil. Because if you look around, you know, most of the, the areas are not in green. And the... So it wasn't because of all the trees that, that the JNF planted? There. No, JNF wasn't there yet. They <laughs> <laughs> were green and there was green. water and uh, trees. Okay. Traditionally, historically, you know, Bedouins had some clashes with the JNF. With really? The, in the beginning, with the Karen Kaeme. Right. Because we were, you know, trying to uh, feed the, the enemy. And they would come in with animals, any animals, and of course they will cut the small ones. They are, you know, right after they plant them. The Bedouin community has been very fluid in terms of Israel's history, and there, you know, many of them do not see themselves as Arab Israeli. Some do, but many of them do not see themselves as Palestinian. In your book that you wrote about growing up, there was a lot of clashes between you and other Palestinian children, if I'm correct, from when you were younger. How has that? affected the way that you represent Israel? How um, does that affect the way that you're received? You know, you're part of a very small minority community in, in Israel, and you're also Israel's first non-Jewish diplomat, if I'm correct. You're, you're Israel's first active Bedouin diplomat. So I know you're kind of a trailblazer for your community, and I assume that you've had certain types of like hurdles while building your career. Is that not true? Is, is, is that something that you can elaborate on? Yeah, look, let's put it right. The Bedouins are part of the Arab culture. Bedouins are Arabs, uh, different, uh, you know, lifestyle and different customs, different uh, heritage, traditions, uh, which make them uh, unique. And uh, to understand that unique, uh, you know, uh, position and status of the Bedouin community as part of Israel today, you have to look back at the 1930s and 1940s, 1930s, 1940s, when the first Jewish halutzim or Jewish pioneers came, moved here mainly from East Europe, okay? The Yiddish speakers, we call them. Israel wasn't there yet. And the leaders of the different, you know, Bedouin tribes, especially in the Galil, speaking about the Bedouins in the Galil, made those connections with the leaders of the Jewish Zionist organization. So the Bedouin then, community is very fragmented. Well, the Bedouin community in Israel are two parts. You have the southern community, the larger community, 
in the Negev, southern Israel. Okay. And then the community I'm coming from in the north, smaller, You're living in the Galil. And of course, the, the history of you know becoming part of Israeli society, more or less different. When those relations started 1930s, 1940s, and the Bedouin community started to settle down near the newborn Jewish kibbutzim or different agricultural communities and working with them together. So if you look at the Galil, I said there are 20 Bedouin communities. Most of them, 80% of them, are located near a kibbutz or in a kibbutz. Hmm. Yeah. So the relations were there. Now, most important is that as part of this, you know, cooperation for different reasons, okay, and getting the close relations, their Bedouins were recruited or started serving in the uh, Jewish uh, military organizations, if you want to call it, in order to protect the Jewish towns. Then, the Haganah first, and then the Palmach during the forties. So they were the 40s. in the Haganah. I didn't know in the Haganah, of course, there was a Haganah. unit, a Bedouin unit, in the Palmach from one of the biggest uh, tribes called El Hib. You know, Pelhib, they call it. Adam, you mentioned something. I didn't fight with anybody. I, you know, we, we had, yes, there were some tensions with the Israeli Arab kids. Israeli Arab kids. Because you know, today, today, yeah, today, when you speak about Palestinians, you mean, of course, Gaza, Palestinians living in the West Bank. In fact, yes, today we are in a minority within the Arab minority in the state of Israel, and we are not, uh, you know, different people. But we are a minority within the Arab Of course, we have, you know, closer relations with the state and its national institutions, with the Jewish communities, with other communities, of course, but still we are part of non-Jewish minorities, here mainly the Arab community. What are the biggest differences between the Bedouin minority within a minority and the rest of the Israeli Arabs of the North? How would you describe the differences to somebody who's unfamiliar? Look at the Bedouin community again. We are a tribe, we have the tribal system which makes a connection between the family members, okay? And that's what makes you more unique and even different from the rest of the community. Of course, as a result, we have different, I would say, the lifestyle is different. We are shepherds. The Arab community, the larger Arab community, they are considered the landowners, the farmers, while we are the shepherds, you know, we have no use to move around. So the connection to the land is, is you know, doesn't exist with us, in the Bedouin community. And also, if you look at the religious part, we are all Muslims. The most part, okay, and religion wasn't part of our tradition, our heritage. Because it was not, to, or what? it was not because we knew we were Muslim, but people were, you know, walking around or try, moving around, so they didn't practice. Instead, we developed, you know, those customs, I would say, or norms, which are again unique to being a Bedouin, like hospitality, respect for others, commitment, you know, to family, but all of these things. So I think that's what makes you, when you say, our Bedouin course have its own again you know the accent is different and uh, and in terms of participating in israel's sort of normative mainstream institutions such as serving the idf the bedouins in general have a different attitude than the rest of israeli arabs look obviously i think we feel it goes back you know to, to to the 1930s and 40s this is not like we woke up one day and you know there's this jewish state and we are part of it no i mean the relations where you know we, we spoke about it before we built those relations already before the state you know in a way you know bedouin that was my grandmother generation who even you know spoke Yiddish because he learned from those you know kibbutzniks nearby that generation participated in the effort of the building or the establishing of the future state 1948 okay so they were so yeah of course step by step you know we became part of the institutions we became of course not all of us because if you remember if you know we are a very traditional society and the, the transition f- to becoming more settled, being integral part of a modern society, which is Israel, it's, it's a process that takes so time. You're saying that the biggest challenge with Zionism wasn't political so much as cultural. That all of a sudden you're dealing with, you're surrounded by a modern Western-style secular country. There's a challenge in, in 
adapting to that. It's, I think it's deeper. As a human being, we, of course, knew who we are. I mean, like each other. The Jewish communities knew themselves and knew us, and we knew the Jewish communities, different Jewish organizations, and we knew ourselves. And we worked together because we had to survive together. We had to live together. So first of all, it's social. We became friends. You know, one side you saw Bedouins who are shepherds. On the other side, you have, you know, Jews led by Zionist organizations and, you know, came from different religion, different world. So we lived together and we knew that we have to live here together, close to each other, despite, you know, those differences. So let's talk about you. So you grew up in Hawali. Hawali. You served in the IDF? Yeah. yeah. And what did you do in the IDF? That's an important thing also. You know, the Bedouins don't have to serve in the military. We are not under the compulsory service. We do it as volunteers for different reasons. I did the border police, and then I went to the police, and then served in the defense ministry for some time. Wait, so and you said for different reasons. Why did you serve? Why? Yeah. Well, the main reason I say it is that, you know, we looked at ourselves, considered ourselves as part of the society and parts of the state. Bedouin served in the Haganah and the Palma. So this continued after Israel was established and the IDF was established. So we believe that is our role. So what's the, would you say, the percentage of the Bedouin community that serves in the Look, government? you know, it's a good question because uh, I'm speaking again about uh, Galil Bedouins. Throughout the years, you know, the, the percent or the rate, you know, changed. It went up and went down. The different reasons are sometimes economic, sometimes social, sometimes, you know, different things. Okay, prevented people from committing for two or three years military service. So they would prefer to work and help their parents in, at home and build their own family rather than, you know, going and nobody supporting them. So, you know, still, I mean, even the system, the IDF system and the state system until today, it's not 100% built to dealing with social issues, cultural issues with the Bedouin community. So, for instance, if there is a Bedouin soldier who have an issue at home, it's very hard for the military to deal with it. Take a Khayal Boudet, like a a lone soldier coming from America here, the system quickly will help him, will succeed at the most part. Okay, but if a Bedouin soldier have similar issues, first of all, he won't go and tell, again, cultural issue. He will feel shy. The system itself won't identify, you know, those issues, problems. I can give you a very, very close, you know, example. Family member who had a trauma, PTSD, okay? And because he was in, in his unit, it was 2003, an officer in his unit and two soldiers were killed in the southern border of Gaza. And he, you know, had no idea what to do. And until like, he escaped after some time, they put him in military jail. Then he came back to the unit. Then he went back to military jail. And then they decided, asked him, you know what, after a year, you have to complete those years in jail in the military service, and then we'll release you. So nobody knew what was going on with him. Why? And he was one of the most, you know, like prowess, you know, soldiers in the unit. And he said that something happened to him. So, you know, these things are affect, you know, uh, but, but I think the, the most important thing from where I see it, you know, especially with the younger generation, you'll see a higher rate of uh, girls who do national service or civil service. They finish high school and they commit themselves for one year or two years in hospitals, in schools, kindergartens. You know, one of my nieces did uh, finished her uh, in the uh, police in the legal department. And then you went, after you were in the border police, you went to work for the defense ministry? No, then I decided to continue uh, my studies at the Tel Aviv University for a master's. And then I... What did you get your master's in? In international relations. And by the way, you know, the way back to the village was almost, you know, impossible. Because what are you going to do with the bachelor's degree and the security service? Go back and be a shepherd in the village? So it's part of the change. So I said, okay, I want to continue my studies. And then working worked for the American Embassy as a student for three years after I finished my master's. In Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv. And then I joined the defense ministry. And a few years after, 
I had two friends in a year and a half period difference, Bedouins who were killed during their service. One was in the border police in Hebron, was a major, is the operation officer for the border police in Hebron, and the other one in one of the checkpoints in East Jerusalem, in Zaim checkpoint. They were killed, and I decided that I have to do something which is more meaningful, rather, you know. And I decided to become a diplomat, and that's where my career started. What do you do the day that you decide that you're going to become a diplomat? Do you just go to the foreign ministry and say... No, you know, I heard about this before because uh, as a student, I remember that representatives from the foreign ministry came to the uh, university and they had, uh, you know, like lectures and trying to encourage people to join more and more. I heard about it and knew about it. And the other thing is, after finishing my master's degree and working for the American embassy, I decided to go visit a friend in New York City. So I went to New York and that was, you know, like a story which also changed my decision about what to do in the future. I remember they invited me to three places to speak. They said, well, of course you are here. Can you come and tell us about what is going on? That was the beginning of the second intifada, the second of 2000, if you remember. The beginning of 2001, then I went to Philadelphia, New York, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights, I remember. And then someone else asked me if they, if I want to come to Chicago for a weekend, come Wait, here and speak at the synagogue. Also, the beginning of the second intifada is also around the time of 9-11 in New York. That's, that's the beginning of the year, exactly. A year before. Oh, exactly. Before 9-11. Yeah, before 9-11. So I went there. I remember I took a bus. I said, well, of course, yeah, I will come. I had no idea how long was that from New York. And she said, okay, we'll fly you. I said, no, you don't need to fly. I'll take a bus. I'll, I'll manage. And I took a flight about 20 uh, hours. From New York to Chicago. From New York to Chicago. And I made it. Big mistake. And you, you spoke before about cold here, Adam, in, in, in New York City. You know, the, that was the first time I knew what a cold is. I went off the bus station in the evening in Chicago, downtown Chicago. Yeah. I went outside. Yeah. You know, I had no idea why, why did I came here there. I saw it was, that was when I felt cold for the first time. I had to take a train in the L. L, exactly, and go somewhere in North Chicago. Yeah. As a diplomat, you also... But he wasn't an official diplomat yet. yet. Yeah. No, 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 no. But that, he that's was working. As that's, a that was a, that's the background which made me you know, join the foreign service. What, what did you see in America that made you say, okay, I have to do this? Well, first of all, the decision was after my two of my friends got killed. Okay, and I said, wait a second, I want to also, you know, I'm the face of the country. I want to do something else. So people know about us or hear about us, not only when two Bedouin kids, Bedouin soldiers are killed. No, we are part, we have a history, I mentioned before, and we are an integral part of the society we're trying to be. And in America, I think that the fact that, you know, I spoke with at three places then, and I saw that the level of knowledge, even among Jewish communities, I'm speaking about Jewish communities, the, the ones I spoke with was almost nothing to say okay well we're very basic and i said you look i have to be there more and more you know and uh, explain and answer questions because uh, it's an educational thing it's crucial i think later it became crucial when their anti-israel uh, movement started to you know flourish around america so it's been 20 years since that trip almost how do you think the jewish community has changed do you think it's still look, as ignorant as it, as it was back then to no i can't listen i can't judge the jewish community in general i think when it comes to knowledge about and education about israel i think we need more and more to invest we i'm saying as a country the state of israel of course when it comes to minorities and Bedouins and those little stories, they are almost not familiar. So you would, you would say that the pro-Israel community, not even the Jewish community, but the pro-Israel community, that's non-Jews and Jews alike, totally unfamiliar to the minorities. No, absolutely. Totally. But, but look, you have to focus on the Jewish community because after all, this is a Jewish state. And I do, you remember, honestly, when I went to the first time, 
And I spoke in Chicago, you know, I was extremely sick. And, you know, I was talking to a friend who was Israeli, who, was in, who invited me there. I said, listen, these are Jewish people. To me, the, Israel is part of their Jewish identity. They can't decide if how strong and how close, but they had no, I mean, to them, I was kind of, you know, weird. Burn. I'm speaking about adults. I'm speaking about 19 years old. Not the 19 years old who was were born then, who are today 19 years old and going to universities and campuses and being, you know, attacked about Israel or about loyalty to Israel or about connection to Israel while they have nothing. So you spent time also in Los Angeles, right? In San Francisco. In San Fra- yeah. San Francisco. It's a lot warmer in San Francisco. Look, it's more, I mean, this is America. I mean, the criticism is higher than any other places I've seen. But uh, look, unfortunately, in the last few years, I think the last five years, you know, these anti-Israel movements increased. And one of the reasons in my eyes is because there is more participation of young Jewish students. That's your observation, that there's more Jewish students involved in the anti-Israel movement? What do you think... I mean, like, I know you're a very big proponent in, in investment in PR by the country. What do you think that reflects? What problem do you think that reflects if more and more Jewish students are joining the anti-Israel movement? Look, I don't know what the reason is or what the reasons are. But as a non-Jewish Israeli citizen whose community has worked with really building... The answer is you have to understand the reasons for the increasing participation of Jewish young students in anti-Israel movements, like BDS movements. I don't think I am really in a place to understand and, you know, analyze. Yeah, but nobody has given good explanations for it. So might as well. I do think that there is a moral responsibility. It's not only a professional thing but or commitment. I think there must be a moral responsibility, especially of the traditional older organization who can you know compare between the older generation and the young generation what is happening with american jewish communities today the shift have to be understood i mean i can't give you a guess but i don't know i think it will be irresponsible i think you have to understand why is that happening why there is more and more or increasing again a distance of the young jewish generation from the state of israel so you spent all told quite a bit of time in america you spent time in san francisco you traveled around the united states you were just in miami and i think that a lot of jewish listeners would be very interested especially people who are involved in this very complicated often very depressing mess of the issue of israel within the american jewish conversation and you who, who knows israel back and forth better than any of them who are not jewish spent time there you got to observe them you got to participate and it was during a period of time also and it's important to mention where the balance between israel and the diaspora has changed, right? Israel used to be a country that needed American Jewish help, and today it feels more and more like American Jews need Israel's help, at least when they're willing to see it. That's one of the changes that happened over that time. Do you think that the American Jewish organizations are equipped, are ready to make the changes necessary in order to engage people in Israel in a new way? What needs to change, in your view, as somebody kind of an insider on the outside in a very you know, important way? Look, let me tell you one thing. Three weeks ago, the Jewish world, including Israel, commemorated the International Holocaust. And, you know, seeing the increasing attacks on Jewish communities around the world is very troubling and very, you know, uh, bothering and disturbing to us as a state. I think we have to stand up and react. We have to do something in order to educate. I don't think it's financial issues, but it's more educational, more, you know, stronger connection. I think the responsibility is more moral here. Because whoever hurt, you know, Jewish communities, and no matter what the reason is, if that's about Israel or Israeli, you know, military or activities or whatever, whoever hurts them hurts Israel, hurts this country as a Jewish state. Now, I think, we, yes, we do know that the Jewish agency here in Israel are 
are doing more and more in the last few years, last 10, 15 years. We have to invest more in this field, education. If you look at the Jewish agency today, had almost on every campus, major campus, have a shaliyah or have an emissary. We have our own you know, consulates around the states. We have in Canada, in England, and uh, representatives. I think, yes, we have to intensify those uh, efforts, be that in uh, helping with educational materials, listen to them, see what their needs are, give them a feeling that we are close to them, that we are there for them. The connections have to be stronger. Look, again, you know, there are many Jewish organizations. Again, I mean, I can't judge because I don't know really what they are doing on the daily life when it comes to strengthening the connections between the Jewish communities and the state of Israel. But I do think that, strongly believe even that we need to invest more and more, we as a state. Do you feel that uh, from what you've experienced as a diplomat representing the country, that many of the larger organizations do not properly represent the reality of the country? I mean, earlier you had said that in your first trip to America, people were very unaware of the minorities and the, the different communities in Israel. Do you still think that 20 years later, since you've begun your career as a diplomat, that you're still fighting in a way for people to understand the reality in which this country lives in? Look, in general, I can't uh, say that because I think uh, most of the, uh, from what I saw, most of the different organizations are investing in explaining to their audiences to the, in the Jewish communities and outside the Jewish communities about the reality here. In all fields, from economic to political, security and all of these things. But if you ask me, as a Bedouin, I think that those efforts telling about the reality and facts of being, you know, a diverse society, of being, you know, having minorities just like ourselves, I think that's still shallow. And that's why they don't know. When Israel is being attacked for being racist, or racist against Jews, what do you know about non-Jews in Israel? Because for them, well, Israel is a Jewish state. That's it. Jewish community. For them, I'm weird. I shouldn't exist. I shouldn't exist because they don't know about my existence. And when you tell them about Israeli, Bedouin, diplomat, Muslim diplomat, whatever that is, okay, for them, that is, first of all, enlightening, educating, strengthening, by the way. It gives them more confidence. Use it against, you know, those uh, uh, negative accusations. But still, for them, it's weird. How does that feel for you? You know, I always feel as a, not outsider, but gives you really a feeling that if they don't know anything about me, then it's, it's, very, it's a really hard feeling. Sometimes you feel really you are, you know, you are, you are in the backyard. From one side, you are part of the country, but back for them, no, you are not. And it's, a, and, and it's almost like they have an Israel that's their Israel. Exactly. I don't think that they are doing it intentionally. I mean, but they, they grow up with these things. Israel, Jewish state, simple. That's it. Now, why does having any minority community negate it being a Jewish state by any means whatsoever. I have the full right to call myself, you know, a Bedouin a tribe of Hawaii. Okay, simple. Right. I am this village is for Bedouins only. Okay? The same thing with the state of Israel. The state of Israel is a Jewish state, and that is a fact, the state of the Jewish people only. Look, I think, that, I mean, that doesn't contradict. Go to Ukraine, go to uh, Denmark, go, I think, even to, to, to Ireland and see their constitution. <laughs> Speaking about I mean, it doesn't contradict. I think, look, I think, you know, the, uh, this is an ethnic nation state. It's also a democracy. We give full rights. Exactly. To the treatment of, of minorities. But it's an ethnic nation state, like so many others, where it's founded as the state of the Jewish people. Even in the new nation state law, if you read it carefully, it doesn't say there's not going to be rights for other communities. 100%. It says, it says national self-determination. Individual self-determination, yes. Communal self-determination, yes. But national self-determination, only for the Jews. That's all that the, the, the nation's... This community helped build this country. Perfect. To me, it's about... It has nothing to do with Jewish state or non-Jewish state because I don't think the character 
of Israel being a Jewish state can ever be threatened by no, but a, look, a minority. Look, look, listen, you have to be realistic. I mean, it's still, even till today, 2020, unfortunately, there are many little rules and kodot, I don't know what that is, right. exactly right. who discriminate against, because you are giving priority for, uh, for Jews. There are issues, it's not a perfect state. Our responsibility, and I'm going back to more moral, moral responsibility, is to stand up and together, hand in hand, try to make it better. What's that on your hand? That's a khinna, and it's on my hand for the last 15 years. I did it for a reason. The reason is written in the book. You can read it there. The book is called, it's an autobiography called The Shepherd's Journey, and it's somewhere and in the end. Explain. I self-published Self-published. Okay, The Shepherd's Journey, can you get it on Amazon? It's on Amazon. And it's Kindle? A, yeah. A Kindle also? Is there sure. an audio version? No. Yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But your china on your hand is in the shape of a smiley face. Sure. Why? To walk up in the morning and, you know. So, so there's a, it's a good thing. It. I really, really Read the book. Read the book. If we all do that. We Maybe can, the world would be a better world, place. If we all had a china with a smiley face, yes. Now, my other question. When were you in London? Uh, 2012, 2015. Four full years. And... Now, you're an Israeli diplomat in London at a time when there's a growing power of a certain, and I, get, I know you don't want to talk about politics, but, but here I, I feel like I have to. Jeremy Corbyn, okay, the rise of, of a Labour Party that, you know, that really at a certain point looked like it, it was a real contender for taking power with a very serious anti-Semitism problem. And the Jewish community there. What was it like for you to be an Israeli diplomat in the UK at that time? Because it was a little scary for Jews. No, look, that's an excellent uh, question. First, uh, I just finished writing another book about it called uh, Diplomat in the Lion's Den, about being Israeli diplomat in London. And by the way, I went to London to establish, and I did, uh, the first diplomatic position dealing or fighting with the BDS, against BDS. So, um, four crazy years. Now, look, I think, you know, Corbyn became a, a, like they made him, he became kind of a brand for anti-Semitism. I think that's too exaggerated. There are many Corbyns around the country, many, 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 but they are not vocal. I mean, they work under the surface, like uh, grassroots. It's everywhere. He is because you he... You anti-Semitism is very well. Absolutely, 100%. And I say that from the first month or two months I went to England, you know, seeing an 80 years old woman mainstream white women in North uh, Scotland with the Palestinian flag in the snow, in the freezing, you know, uh, cold weather, seeing free, free Palestine, that makes something, you know, to you to think or even rethink. Why is she doing that? If she wants to help Palestinians, then but her main thing is Israel, the Jewish state. That is simple. There is no doubt about it. But on a daily basis, absolutely. I Look, I think also to media, you know, the media works in a weird way. You know, things they want to bring up, they'll bring up. Things they want to hide, they will hide. I think anti-Semitism, obviously, it's all over Europe, not only in England. And that is something we have to wake up and stand up and speak up against. And it, it, they, is they, they, it is there. It is there. But Jewish communities, look, I don't want to frighten anybody. Jewish communities work and live proudly, live proudly in Britain. You know, yes, there are different, you know, places, different neighborhoods where if you are with Kippa, people will look at you differently. That is not a new thing. And how are you received in, in the UK as a non-Jewish Look, it's okay. Again, you know, I think yeah. if we go back, David, we go back to the same question, like well, how people in America, Jewish communities look at me. The same thing in England, you know, in the Jewish communities would say, I remember like one woman, she would tell I'm me, really? you look, you are a Bedouin? Yeah, how amazing. You look like everybody else. What do you mean? <laughs> so what did you know? I'm not here. 
So, uh, and, and other people, like, look at that. The anti-Israel forces were always attacking for them. Of course, it's a surprise, but at the same time, it is something, I think, that saying that uh, impolitely, shutting up their mouths. Okay, mm -hmm. if you are talking about Israel, you know, racist country, then, you know, here you have the example and they will do. Like one thing I want to do and want to finish with this, I know this uh, wonderful, energetic guy, Adam, for about, I think, what, 15 years? 14 oh my years, God, 14 I, years. I can't. I, like, mean, I came to speak at, the, in, at the Arizona and he took me, he wanted, you know, for dinner. He wanted to give he him was so excited. And he, was, he was so excited about Israel and doing things for Israel. Then he made Aliyah and I'm very happy to see him here and doing whatever he's doing here. I'm just happy to see you. We can do here. We are more than happy. We are so happy to have you here, uh, Ishmael Khaldi uh, of the Foreign Ministry. I'm David Hazoni, Executive Director of the Israel Innovation Fund, together with Adam Scott Mellis, the CEO and founder. This is In the Blue Corner, and we're in Jerusalem. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks.